Let's imagine the three jewels in the space in front of us, ourselves surrounded by all the center beings. We want to listen to the teachings with a compassionate heart. But to do that, we have to have a relaxed mind that is free of turbulence and anger and upset. So one of the things that often causes turbulence, anger, and upset is having uh, a very judgmental mind, mind that looks at other people and likes to point out faults. Another thing that stimulates that confused, angry mind is clinging on to the self and thinking that we are the most important one, that our feelings are more important than anybody else's. So when we look deeply into the mind that, you know, either is self-centered or loves to criticize and judge other people, we find that that mind is exaggerating. It's not seeing things correctly. It's, It's making up stories in some way. So it's very helpful in those circumstances to describe the situation to ourselves, but without using emotional words. So instead of, for example, saying, that jerk, who does he think he is cutting me off in traffic? I can't stand when people do this. I've got to show him, give him a little taste of his own medicine so he doesn't cut off other people. So there's exaggeration in there. Yeah. We call somebody a name, they're a jerk. Yeah, as if that is their essence, who they really are. Actually, to describe it, you, the situation, you would say, I was driving, driving along in my lane, 
and the car in the lane next to me came in front and merged into my lane. And I had to brake a little bit. That's all. It's not like there was some big fat jerk out to get us who doesn't know how to drive and have, should have their license revoked and da-da-da-da-da. And if we look at our own driving, for example, uh, have none of us ever accidentally cut in front of somebody? So rather than get angry and then decide to drive recklessly and cut in front of the other person in revenge, which could cause an accident in which both of you are injured, why not drop it? Doesn't really matter, does it? We don't have to interpret their cutting in front of us as an act of aggression that we have to defend ourselves against. And we don't really know why they cut in front, whether they didn't see us, was an accident, Or maybe there's somebody who's sick in their car and they're trying to get to the hospital. So in all these kinds of situations, we save ourselves a lot of misery if we don't dream up stories about how terrible the other person was. And just that thing happen, let it be. And from our side, make a strong determination not to cut other people off in traffic. This is a comparatively simple way of calming our mind, subduing the anger. And it's worthwhile to practice that so that we can save ourselves from misery and save ourselves from retaliating and creating more problems. So with an aspiration that really wants to learn how to be compassionate, 
in. Let's listen to the teachings this evening. Have you ever been in a situation where two people you know and care about are quarreling with each other? And then there you are, looking this way, looking that way, caring about both of them and seeing them both go at each other's throat. It's painful, isn't it? But... When the roles are reversed and we're one of those people and somebody else has done something that we interpret as harm, then we have no trouble at all in pouncing on the other person and causing a ruckus and even having another friend who's friends with both me and the person I'm mad with stuck in the middle caring about both of us, and we're not listening to anything. So it's quite interesting. I I try and do this a lot when I see different situations, is imagine myself as one of the people in the situation. And then it uh, can help me see somehow how ridiculous uh, the mind is that gets upset and that gets angry and creates a big fuss about something. Yeah, it's so strange because we all want to live peacefully and yet we all go about creating so many problems for, for ourselves and for each other. It's so strange, isn't it? Yeah, we work totally opposite to what our real uh, wishes. So that is due to afflictions, and that is exactly why we want to get rid of afflictions and attain nirvana. And so that brings us to what we are, where we are in the chapter. Um, last time we talked about uh, nirvana in general and then uh, said that there were four different types of nirvana. Natural nirvana, nirvana with uh, remainder, nirvana without remainder, and non-abiding nirvana. So this is, at uh, we start going into these individually, the bottom of page 263. Okay, so natural nirvana is the ultimate nature of the mind, not, you know, of the mind that is primordially pure and devoid of inherent existence. So it is the mind's emptiness of inherent existence. Okay, so our mind is afflicted by afflictions, 
the emptiness of the mind, the ultimate nature of the mind, is primordially pure in the sense that it is empty of inherent existence. Yeah. And the afflictions are not the nature of the mind. And they can be eliminated because the chief affliction, that's the root, ignorance, apprehends things as inherently existent, whereas they are dependent phenomena, they aren't inherently existent. And so that wrong apprehension of the ignorant mind can be counteracted by wisdom, which sees things as empty of inherent existence. And so that can overpower and eventually eliminate the ignorance. So it's actually because things are empty, especially that the mind is empty, that nirvana is possible. Yeah, If the mind existed inherently, then it would be fixed, it would be permanent, the defilements would inherit in the nature of the mind, there would be no way to get rid of them, and then practicing the path would be useless because there would be no state of liberation from all of that because the mind was inherently existent. Okay, So... That's why the emptiness of the mind is called the natural nirvana. It, it, because the mind is empty, the nirvana that is the cessation of um, dukkha and the causes of dukkha can be attained. Okay? So Chandakirti spoke in, in clear words, said... Since only emptiness has the character of stopping all elaborations, it is called nirvana. Okay, so we we usually think of emptiness as the ultimate nature of all phenomena. Yeah, and here we're really emphasizing emptiness as the nature of the mind and emptiness being free uh, of all elaborations. So elaborations means all the um, all the screwy ways <laughs> that we think things exist. Okay, so one elaboration is the elaboration of inherent existence. Okay, or the elaboration of subject and object. Yeah or the elaboration of the appearance of veiled truths. Yeah, because remember, veiled truths, they're called truths simply because they are, quote, quote, true to ignorance, but they aren't really true. Yeah, because they appear truly existent and ignorance grasps them that way, but phenomena are not truly existent, okay? So, you know, there's these kinds of elaborations. When emptiness is um, perceived directly, there's none of those elaborations. Another elaboration is is the conceptual mind that uh, apprehends things through the, the 
kind of fog of a conceptual appearance. So the direct perception of emptiness is free from all those different elaborations. Yeah, Only emptiness appears to that mind. Only emptiness is perceived by that mind. Yeah, And emptiness is a non-affirming negation. It's an absence. And in this case, it's an absence of something that never existed, which is inherent existence. Okay? So remember, realizing emptiness doesn't make the object that is empty. It doesn't make that object empty. It's already empty. Realizing emptiness is just seeing the ultimate nature that is already there. Yeah. That we haven't seen. Yeah. So emptiness is, it's right here. It's the nature of everything here. Yeah. When we hear, when we hear emptiness is the ultimate truth, we think emptiness is some kind of, you know, mystical thing far away in space or, you know, something, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Out of, out of sight that there's no way to apprehend. And that's not true. It's, it's our own nature, and it's the nature of everything here. Okay. So emptiness itself is free from the elaborations of inherent existence. It, ex- it appears in the way uh, it exists to the main consciousness perceiving it. That is, to the wisdom directly realizing emptiness. Emptiness appears without any elaboration of inherent existence at all. Okay? So, yeah, emptiness is free from the elaboration of inherent existence. It appears the way it exists. It appears empty, and it exists. Emptiness itself is empty. Okay, so it appears empty and exists as empty um, to the main mind perceiving it. So this main mind is not a conceptual inferential mind. It's got to be a direct a mind that directly realizes emptiness. With an inferential mind, yeah, there would be the appearance of inherent existence, the appearance of uh, subject and object, the appearance of a conceptual appearance. Yeah. So um, when we say emptiness itself is free from all elaborations, this is what it means. All those things are not there. Okay. Natural nirvana is, yeah, so that's the section we're talking about now is natural nirvana, is not actual nirvana. In other words, it's not the nirvana that is passing beyond the sorrow of samsara. Okay. However, emptiness, uh, however, as emptiness, natural nirvana acts as the basis that allows for the attainment of actual nirvana. So this is what I was saying before. Because the nature of the mind and of all other phenomena are naturally free of inherent existence, then that acts as the basis for attaining a state in which 
ignorance and the other afflictions have been ceased. As the primordial nature of the mind, nirvana is a quality of the mind. So attaining nirvana does not entail procuring an external quality. Okay? You know, you to to yeah. Nirvana is not somewhere out there that you have to grab onto and have. And it's not a quality that you actively have to cultivate like wisdom or compassion. It's just the nature of things, the quality of the mind. Okay. So rather, as the primordial nature of the mind, it is a quality of the mind. So attaining nirvana does not entail procuring an an external quality. I don't know what's wrong with my voice. Rather, it involves recognizing a quality of the mind that is already present. What is that quality? Emptiness. Okay. When the mind is polluted, it is unawakened. And when it is purified, it is awakened. What is it purified of? Yeah, obscurations, self-grasping, these things. Okay, Its empty nature is present in both instances. So both when the mind is obscured yeah, by afflictions and when the mind is unpolluted and purified, its empty nature is there in both situations. Because the mind lacks inherent existence, it can be freed from all pollutants that are based on grasping inherent existence. Okay? So, you know, uh, whatever it is, you know, magnanimous mouse is, is empty, yeah, because she's empty, then, you know, if... Uh, let's see. Okay. She's empty. My mind is empty. If I grasp magnanimous mouse as something desirable that I want to possess, I gotcha. Okay. If I really notice, if I can look and see that there's absolutely no solid concrete mouse here. There's not even, I mean, not not only not a real mouse here, but there's not a solid concrete stuffed mouse here either. Okay? And my mind that realizes the emptiness of magnanimous mouse, you know, can also realize the emptiness of my own mind. And it can realize the emptiness of the ignorance, too. It's not like the ignorance, anger, attachment, and other afflictions, that they exist inherently. No, they are also empty. Why? Because they're dependent. Yeah. Things that are dependent, things that, especially things that arise due to causes and conditions, yeah, they can't have their own inherent nature. 
So that's a very interesting thing to sit and ponder. You know, why can't something that depends on other factors not have its own nature? Yeah. And sit there and think about, you know, how how the flower, the fake flower, we have a fake flower and a fake, fake, well, okay. I could get into the whole thing about fake. <laughs> yeah. We have fake news. We have a fake president. Yeah. Somebody who claims to be president when they're not. We have lots of fake things. Yeah, I hope you know which one is fake and which one is the actual one. Some people get the two confused. Yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah, because things do not have some essence of their own, that there's, there's nothing in that that makes it be what it is. Yeah, so take any object, you know, take, pretend this is a real flower. Is there anything in this that can make it a real flower? We have parts of a flower. Yeah, but parts of the flower are not the flower. Yeah. If you're going to prom and your date brings you a petal, <laughs> are you supposed to wear a petal on your wrist? <laughs> or maybe a leaf? <laughs> yeah. Or what if you have the, the pistols? They're the little things that stick up there, yeah? So is that what? What is the flower? No, none of the parts of the flower is a flower. So you put a, a bunch of non-flowers together in a certain arrangement and then look at them and your mind creates a flower out of non-flowers. That's pretty creative, isn't it? Yeah. When you think of it, you make a cake out of a lot of things that are not cakes. So you put all these non-cakes together, stir them up, put them in an oven, and you get a cake. That's magic. Yeah. How can you create a cake out of non-cakes? That's like pulling a rabbit out of a hat. Yeah, when you really think about it, Uh, this is pretty shocking because we tend to see everything as so concrete and, and self-defined and it's not. Okay. So because the mind lacks inherent existence, it can be freed from all pollutants that are based on the grasping at inherent existence. And all the afflictions are based on that grasping. 
In a more general way, natural nirvana refers to emptiness. Everything around us, as well as the Four Noble Truths, as well as the basis, path, and result, are empty of inherent existence. So samsara is empty of inherent existence. We follow and practice a path that is empty of inherent existence and attain nirvana that is also empty of inherent existence. When you think about it, that's kind of shocking, isn't it? You know, and that none of the nature of none of those things change. It's just that we are finally realizing their ultimate nature and our mind changes. Yeah. So nirvana is not two clouds up and one cloud over and like that. In this way, all phenomena can said can be said to possess natural nirvana or emptiness, because they're all empty. However, only sentient beings can attain the nirvana that is free of obscurations, because that nirvana is the emptiness of the purified mind. So remember last week we talked about we talked about nirvana being the ultimate nature of the mind that is free from all obscurations. So that nirvana is the emptiness of a mind. It's not, it's it's the natural nirvana of that mind in its purified form. But it is not the natural nirvana or the emptiness of the bell, for example. Okay, now, the the next two kinds of emptiness, nirvana with and without remainder. So according to the Svatantrikas and below, and I know all of you have been taking the, the tennis class, yeah, for your forward and your back, and yeah. <laughs> yeah, so uh, y- you you know who the Svatantrikas are. Maybe. Maybe not. Anyway, the Svatantrikas and below, to, to those people, remainder in the term nirvana with and, reout, with, with and re, without remainder refers to the ordinary aggregates. Okay, so what's the remainder to those schools? Ordinary aggregates. What are the ordinary aggregates? (laughs) They are the aggregates uh, that are true dukkha. Yeah, that come into existence under the influence of afflictions and karma, especially ignorance. Okay, so Shravaka Arhats... Those are the here arhats. Uh, they're fundamental vehicle practitioners who aim for um, arhatship, and that's what they attain. Uh, they first attain nirvana without remainder. 
because at the time they eliminate all afflictive obscurations and attain liberation, they still have their ordinary bodies. Okay? So, Arhat, uh, Arhat Anthony, yeah, is, uh, hmm? Arhat Anthony, before he became an Arhat, okay, then he's, let's say, non-returner Anthony. And he becomes an Arhat, and at that time of becoming an Arhat, according to these schools, he still has his body, which arose due to afflictions and karma, because in that life he was still born as uh, as a being with afflictions. Okay, so non 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 returners have afflictions. Okay, when those arhats die and they shed those bodies which were they were born with in their last rebirth and in which they which they inhabited when they attained nirvana. Um, so when they die and shed those bodies, there is nirvana without remainder because the continuity of the polluted aggregates has ceased. Okay, when they die, the body dies, the mind, the uh, aggregates, the mental aggregates of that birth also cease. And so they are freed of the five polluted aggregates at that time. The Vavasakas and Sautantrikas, who do not accept one final vehicle. Okay, so one final vehicle means um, that everyone will attain nirvana, that at the end you know, or eventually, ultimately, everybody will practice the Mahayana and become become a Buddha. So that's called, you know, one final vehicle. Yeah, the final vehicle being Buddha, the the Mahayana path that results in Buddhahood. Yeah. The the schools that don't accept that that say not everybody can become a Buddha. Yeah. then they assert three final vehicles. In other words, if you enter the Shravaka vehicle, you practice the Shravaka path, you attain Shravaka arhatship, and that's it. That's the end of the path for you. You never attain Buddhahood. The solitary realizer Aryas practice that path. When they ta- attain solitary realizer um, an awakening, then, you know, that arhatship, that's the end of the path for them. Okay, so that's how it's described in, in the lower be- vehicles. Yeah, because they don't accept one uh, one final vehicle. It's quite interesting. There's, um, it's the Chita Madra, the uh, proponent, Chita Madra scripture proponents, that they're one of the big ones too, um, who say that there's three, three final vehicles. Okay, and so they say, well, okay, there's the Mahayana vehicle and the solitary realizer vehicle and the um, uh, the Shravaka vehicle, 
And I think they say there's an undetermined vehicle, too, depending on what teacher you meet and circumstances. And then there's the people called, I can never pronounce the Sanskrit term, something like itchantikas or something like that. So these beings, their root of virtue is cut, and they can't attain uh, nirvana or liberation according to that skull. Yeah. So when you're really depressed and you hate yourself, then you can think, oh, well, maybe I'm one of those beings. Yeah. But I don't think so. Yeah. I think if the root of your virtue was really cut, you wouldn't be here. Okay. And I don't believe that any sentient being can so completely cut their root of virtue that enlightenment, you know, of any kind is impossible because of the natural, natural nirvana. Yeah. Okay, so Vibhasakas and Satantrikas, who do not accept one final vehicle, that is, they do not believe that all sentient beings can attain Buddhahood, assert that at the time of nirvana without remainder, when an arhat passes away, his or her continuum of consciousness ceases, although the nirvana without remainder exists. Okay, sit with that one for a while, huh? Okay. Um, yeah, so this is how the Tibetans view the Vibhasakas and Satantrikas, okay? What, you know, and then they often say, well, the people in the Theravada tradition are Vibhasakas and Satantrikas. So they say that when they attain our hardship, then after that the consciousness ceases. So when I was in um, in Thailand, you know, learning about that tradition for, for this series, I asked that question, yeah, and I got a variety of answers. Some people said that actually in the Pali suttas themselves, the Buddha does not say very much about what nirvana is beyond the fact that it is freedom from dukkha and the causes of dukkha. In other words, he didn't go into some philosophical something or other to describe what what nirvana is. It's just the end, you know, it's like the candle. You, you have... Uh, a burning candle, it's like the burning of ignorance. When the candle goes out, that's it. You don't, it's not that you have something else after that, after the candle goes out. So they say, you know, it's the aggregates of the person, the continuity of the person uh, ceases. Yeah, the con- even the consciousness of the person ceases. So then the prasangikas, say to them, okay, 
if there's no continuity of the person after nirvana without remainder is attained, then who attained nirvana? And whose nirvana is that? Because if you don't have the aggregates, there's no person. So you have nirvana, but you don't have a person who has nirvana. And when you have a person, then you don't have nirvana because you still have ignorance. Okay, so that's that's what they say to the to the Theravada people. Um, but when I was in Thailand, uh, it's quite interesting. Um, and those of you who have read Achen Mun's uh, biography, you know, it talks about these kinds of things too. And so there are people who say no, uh, the the consciousness continues after the aggregates of that last rebirth cease. Yeah? And that there is some kind of continuity of consciousness in a pure form. Again, there's not a, a lot of discussion or elaboration on what that is, but some people don't say that everything, the continuity of the person ceases. Okay. So it's quite interesting what the different schools say to each other, and you wonder how much they actually knew about each other and how much the these schools... I don't think the schools were as rigid as they are in the tenants' texts, you know. In the tenants' texts, you, you know, they believe in this and this and this and this and this and this, you know. Um, but I don't think in any group you can have everybody who has every single idea being the same, okay? I just don't think so. Uh, but the tenant system is a very good pedagogical tool by getting us to think about these different assertions and what do we think, you know? How do we think things exist? What do we think the path entails when we're giving these, given these different outlines? Okay. So this is a lot of what the debate in the Tibetan system centers around. You know, why they jump up and down and clap and scream at each other. (laughs) They get very involved in debate. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Prasangikas, Svatantrikas, and Chittamadra reasoning opponents, proponents, who assert one final vehicle, that is all uh, that all sentient beings will eventually attain Buddhahood. Say that the continuum of consciousness exists even after our hearts leave their polluted bodies. At this time, they are born in the Zukavati Pure Land, where they have nirvana without the remainder, because no suffering aggregates remain, and instead they have a mental body. While these aggregates, about these arhats, still have the five aggregates, they are not polluted aggregates because they were not taken under the control 
of afflictions and polluted karma. So for these arhats born in Sukhavati, we usually think of Sukhavati, Abhitabha's pure land, as a place for Mahayana practitioners. But actually, uh, it's said that the uh, fundamental vehicle arhats are born there. When I told that to one Geshe, he said, what? No, that can't be. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, "Uh, I heard uh, Gandhan Tripa say that in teachings. Mm -hmm." You know, but... uh, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, it's rather shocking. You know, when you have one, you what you learned about Sukhavati is, is that, you know, all you do is say Amitofo a bunch of times and you're born there. Then it's really shocking Then you, when you learn not only are Arhats born there, but you have to do more than say Amitofo to get born there yourself. Okay. So, uh, so those arhats still have the continuity of consciousness. Okay, they have left their polluted bodies, which were the human bodies. Yeah, they're born in Sugathati, pure land, where they have the nirvana without remainder. Yeah, they've eliminated uh, the first two truths, dukkha and the cause of dukkha. Okay. They don't have polluted aggregates because they weren't born there under the force of ignorance and karma. Okay. So they're they're out of samsara. Yeah. They've attained liberation. But in Amitabha's pure land, as the story goes, I have no personal experience of this. Uh, there are nine kinds of lotuses, nine degrees of lotuses. And when you're born there, you are born inside of a lotus. If you are a very excellent practitioner and have some realizations, your lotus opens very quickly, which is good because then you can, you know, start practicing and have teachings from Amitabha directly and Chenrezi directly and Nagarjuna directly. So their lotuses open really quickly. The arhats, yeah, even though they're liberated, their lotuses open very slowly because they have a strong tendency to stay in meditation on emptiness. It's so blissful meditating in that state of nirvana yeah, that they, you know, it's hard to come out when it's so peaceful and so blissful and nothing's bugging you. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so they, they are habituated to that. So it's actually quite difficult for them to come out of that meditative equipoise. And then when they do, they have to start all over on the bodhisattva path of accumulation. So they've gone through the five paths of the fundamental vehicle, 
Yeah, and attain the path of no more seeing, no more learning of that vehicle. Now they have to go back to the first path, the first bodhisattva path of accumulation, and they have to spend a lot of time creating merit. They they already have the wisdom realizing emptiness, which is one of the big realizations you have to gain on whatever set of five paths you're practicing. But they don't have the merit. Yeah. So they have to go back and then be taught uh, how to generate bodhicitta. They have to generate bodhicitta, then uh, practice the six perfections, you know, spend three countless great eons accumulating merit, even though there are hots. Yeah. So that that because of that, it takes uh, somebody who has entered the arhat path and a part a path to arhatship first. It takes them much longer to attain full awakening than it does for somebody who enters the Mahayana path at the get go. Okay, so this is why our teachers really emphasize to us. You know, generate bodhicitta, even though it's, you know, uh, contrived bodhicitta, even though it's artificial. You're putting that into your mind and developing admiration for it and developing a habit with that. And that will actually get you to Buddhahood faster than going the route of our hardship first which would get you out of samsara faster. So here's where you see what self-centeredness actually means, okay? The real self-centeredness that that we talk about isn't just the self-centeredness that uh, makes us attached and angry. It includes that. But here the self-centeredness is the mind that cherishes our own nirvana above everybody else's. So with that kind of self-centeredness, you practice, you know, either the shravaka or the solitary realizer path, attain our hotship. Yeah, you're out of nirvana. All your friends who decided to practice, and you're out of samsara, you have attained nirvana. All your friends who decided to do the bodhisattva path, they're still, you know, drowning in samsara. They might not have even entered the first bodhisattva path. Yeah, because you need a lot of merit just to enter the first bodhisattva path. Yeah, maybe they haven't done that. So they're still in samsara. You've attained nirvana. Yeah, but actually those friends are going to attain Buddhahood faster than you will because of having gone the route of our hardship and then come back and gone to to uh, non-abiding nirvana. Okay, is that clear? Yeah, people have that. Okay. So they practice to where they are reborn in Sukhavati, but because they haven't done the Bodhisattva path, they are then relegated back into another realm. They can't continue that path, the Mahayana path in Sukhavati. They have to go. No, I think they, they probably can. The can. Path in I think they probably can. They can, they may want to go back and be born in the human realm too, 
but they probably could, you know, I mean, Amitabha can certainly teach them the Mahayana path. I would think that it might be <laughs> probably the best situation to be able to, to go on the, the Mahayana path yeah. to Kapiti. That yeah. would be the best situation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's why Mahayana practitioners also want to be there, be born there, because it's a very good environment for practice. What would be the cause for these Shravaka Hahas to be born there if they have no aspiration? Um, I think just because they're, you know, I've never heard a specific cause mentioned. It seems like that's just, you know, where they are born when they, uh, after they leave the, the polluted body, you know, that's where they're born. Why not? Another pure land, why? Oh, why that one? I don't know. We should look at Amitabha's um, vows. There might very well be one specifically for Shravakas and solitary realizers, you know, welcoming them to, to be born there. No, no. If we look at Amitabha's, uh, you, you know, he made all these vows. Yeah. And one of them may be, I can't remember, maybe you can look it up, saying, uh, you know, may all the the people who attain fundamental vehicle arhatship, may they be born in my land and may they attain full enlightenment there. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Even if it's not directly one of his his vows, he may, you know. I I don't. I think Amitabha probably welcomes everybody, mm-hmm. you yeah. know. Yeah, on his side, I think there's no problem. Kind of like, they have no aspiration. They have yeah, they have no aspiration. They never thought about it, and yet, yeah, I and because there they, you know, it's a place where they can meditate. In, in meditative equipoise on emptiness, which is what they like to do. So when they're they're born in a lotus there, that's what they meditate on, you know, until the Buddha says, okay, enough meditation. <laughs> yeah, in nirvana, there's some work to do. Okay. So maybe some of them are born in other pure lands. But Amitabha's pure land, uh, well, they say uh, ordinary beings can be born there. But of course, you know, these those arhats are aryas. They're not ordinary beings. When a bodhisattva reaches the path of no more learning and becomes a, a Buddha, mm-hmm. and they still have the body that they were born in, is that still with remainder or oh, no, no? Because no. by then they have not been born under the... Yeah, yeah. Already at the path of seeing, many of them take a mental body, and by the eighth uh, ground, they have have eliminated all the afflictive obscurations. So at that level, in terms of that, of, of being out of samsara, they're equal, you know, but of course, because of their compassion and accumulation of merit, they're seen as superior to those arhats. So when an arhat becomes um, liberated, 
And they still have the body they were born in, mm -hmm. which is a polluted form aggregate. Mm -hmm. Are the other four aggregates still polluted or they're purified? They're, um, they started out polluted. I think you've got to say that they've been purified because, you know, at least the consciousness has been purified, probably the other mental factors as well. But, uh, you know, because sometimes it's interesting, sometimes when they say aggregates, or they just say, uh, uh, you don't know whether it's singular or plural, because sometimes it refers just to the body and sometimes it refers to all five aggregates. You know, usually when they're talking about nirvana with and rea without remainder, they say that it's all five aggregates, but then the determining thing is whether you have the body born or, or not born with afflictions and karma. Uh, okay. Yeah? From Anitapa's 48 vows, number 14 kind of maybe hints at why the, sh the Shavakas might be born there. Arhats says, if I should attain Buddhahood, yet the number of Shravakas in my land could be counted, even if their number is known only after all the sentient beings of a 3,000-fold world systems would become Pracheka Buddhas and count together for hundreds of thousands of Kalpas, may I not attain perfect enlightenment? Yeah, sure. So he wants to he wants to Shravakas there. Yeah. Um, may I ask another question? Yeah. Um, is natural nirvana the same as the natural naturally abiding Buddha nature? Uh, pretty much so, yeah. Okay. And uh, when it says that the Vabashtakas and Sotantrikas say that when that the nirvana without remainder exists after the continuity of consciousness ceases, mm -hmm. you only have an emptiness when you have a base of a, of a conventional truth. Yeah. Do they address that? Not that I know of. First of all, they don't talk about, those schools don't talk about the emptiness of inherent existence. They don't assert a, uh, a selflessness of phenomena. So, yeah? Tracy? If I understand, it sounds a little bit like the arhats are, are striving for nirvana, but a sharp faculty student is also... Um, striving for uh, awareness, you know, understanding, realization of emptiness. Uh, what similarities are there? There are differences. Oh, okay. So when we talk about a sharp faculty Mahayana practitioner, we're talking about somebody who hasn't yet, uh, well, at the beginning, they, later on they enter the Mahayana path, but at the very beginning they haven't, generated uh, spontaneous bodhicitta and entered the Mahayana path because they want to be very clear that it's possible to attain nirvana. It's possible to eliminate the two obscurations. So in order to know that that's possible to do, they have to have uh, at least, they have to have an inferential understanding of uh, emptiness Okay, so these these people, it's they're not like the the people in the uh, fundamental vehicle paths who never 
you know, they don't think about bodhicitta or whatever. They're just focused on their own path. These people have heard of bodhicitta. They admire bodhicitta. They want to enter the Mahayana path. Okay, so they have all of that in their mind already. And then so that they feel very confident in entering that path, then they want to make sure that uh, it's possible to attain awakening. Okay. So again, you can see here why our teachers emphasize to us again and again, you know, bodhicitta, bodhicitta, keep generating it, keep thinking about it. Yes, it's artificial, it's contrived, keep doing it, you know. <laughs> um, because, and, and here you also see the power of planting seeds in the mind. You know, the power of habituation and familiarization. Because if we think about bodhicitta again and again and again, yeah, then, you know, we're going to go in that direction. Whereas if you don't know about it, you don't think about it, you look, or you hear something about it and you, and you say, ah, oh, it just takes so long to attain enlightenment that way. And, and I'll benefit sentient beings more by getting myself out of samsara ASAP, you know. So if you have that mind, then, you know, you're not really interested in, in the Mahayana path and in generating bodhicitta. Okay? So our teachers are always, you know, putting things in our mind, and then we have to follow up and put those same things in our own mind. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Puzzling a little bit about, it, it, it must be so, if you have a mental body and, that, and you've reached that place, you still necessarily have to be in a place right i mean like a buddha i mean it's a it's a funny i thought. think there, there are three clouds up turn left at the green cloud right but go to, to the stop sign but you to know say that they right. have to be born in a pure land is pretty that's we are thinking funny. of ordinary birth in and a pure land being like this place it's not. Right. Or even thinking of a lotus. What? E even thinking of them having to be in a lotus so they can keep meditating. Yeah, it's like, oh, I'm going to suffocate in this lotus, <laughs> you know. Yeah, give, give me a, uh, some ox an oxygen tank. Yeah, get me out of this lotus who locked me here anyway. You know, I'm going to take them to court. Yeah, I'm going to elbow my way out of this lotus, you know. What? Who locked me in here? You know. Yeah, who said lotuses were soft and nice? This one's like hard, you know. Yeah, it, 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 what you're bumping into is your ordinary way of thinking. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let me find a good stopping place. Okay. Okay. Okay, so here we're with, with what the Prasangika Svatantra has and Chidamadra reasoning proponents 
who assert one final vehicle that all sentient beings will eventually attain Buddhahood. They say that the continuum of consciousness exists even after our hearts leave their polluted bodies. At this time, they are born in the Sukhavati Pure Land, where they have nirvana without remainder because no suffering aggregates remain, and instead they have a mental body. While these aggregates still have the five, uh, while these arahats still have the five aggregates, they are not polluted aggregates because they were not taken under the control of afflictions and polluted karma. In Sukhavati, these arhats stay in meditative equipoise on emptiness for eons. Yeah. In time, the Buddhas will wake them from their meditative equipoise, teach them the Mahayana doctrine, and cause them to follow the bodhisattva path to full awakening. These arhats then generate bodhicitta and enter the bodhisattva path of accumulation. Unlike bodhisattvas who initially entered the bodhisattva path of accumulation and practiced for three countless gradients to attain awakening, these arahats who later become bodhisattvas require a much longer time to attain awakening, full awakening, because the habituation of seeking only their own liberation is very strong. Okay. In the process of practicing the bodhisattva path, they often spend long periods of time in meditative equipoise on emptiness because they are captivated by the bliss of personal peace. It is difficult for them to generate great compassion and the great resolve that takes the responsibility for the welfare of all sentient beings. Okay? Prasangikas have a unique meaning for nirvana with and without remainder. Okay? This is another way of talking about those two terms. Here, remainder refers to the appearance of inherent existence and the dualistic appearance of subject and object. So that's nirvana with the remainder. Those are the remainders. Okay? Nirvana without remainder is the final true cessation when our hearts have completely overcome afflictive obscurations and attain nirvana, passing beyond sorrow, where sorrow indicates the afflictive obscurations. Okay, so this occurs during meditative equipoise on emptiness. This nirvana is free of the remainder of dualistic appearance and the appearance of inherent existence. Later, upon arising from meditative equipoise on emptiness, arhats again experience the false appearance of inherent existence due to their cognitive obscurations. Okay, this is the nirvana with the remainder of the appearances of inherent existence and of subject-object duality. Okay? So that way of speaking about the remainder, yeah, as being the appearance of uh, inherent existence and subject-object duality, that's unique to the Prasangika system. 
Okay. Yeah. So this Prasangika presentation is um, here. You're mentioning arhats, but it would be the same with bodhisattvas that they during equipoise there there is no appearance of inherent existence, but until they're Buddhas, when they come out of the equipoise, mm -hmm. there's still the appearance. Yeah. So it's not just arhats. It's yeah, but here Arya beings besides Buddhas. Yeah, but here it's really emphasizing, you know, that arhats, um, you know, they've because uh, usually nirvana is, you know, so supreme they've attained nirvana, but they still have the cognitive obscurations. So it, it's emphasizing that point. Yeah, and so then we'll get into non-abiding nirvana next time. And that's talking about nirvana that is free from not only samsara, but from the personal peace of arhatship. Okay. Yeah? This sentence is very interesting, um, where it says the Buddhas will awaken them from their meditative equipoise, teach them Mahayana doctrine, and cause them to follow the Bodhisattva's path of full awakening. So from the side of the Arhats, all of that removal of afflictive obscurations must be making them receptive to this enlightening influence, right? Because otherwise, the Buddhas couldn't, they, they can't cause us to do anything. Um, they have the natural nirvana. They have the Buddha, Buddha nature. Yeah. Okay. So because they have that, then, you know, the Buddhas can, umph, you know, get off your tush and go towards awakening. Okay. <laughs> but we have that too, but yeah. we're still... Yeah, but it, when they cause them to do it, Meaning, you know, I mean, if you had teachings day in and day out from a Buddha teaching you bodhicitta and the six perfections, yeah, you're going to have to be really quite stubborn to put up a fight against all of that and say, no, I don't want to become a Buddha. No, I've, I mean, they're being... When when a Buddha teaches you, you listen. Yeah. Well, that was my point I was making. They've removed the afflictive obstacles. They've done a lot of work. Yeah. So they're more receptive. Right? Yeah. But Although, they have this strong habit yeah. of enjoying meditative equipoise, whereas people who start the bodhisattva path from the beginning have the strong habit of... Uh, generating aspiration and regard for bodhicitta that works in their advantage. Yeah. So I, I find it quite interesting, you know, just observing things as you, as you meet many different people and you meet people who, I mean, I've met people who maybe their first Dharma course was at Copan, and they, you know, at Copan, I mean, you're going to hear about bodhicitta. Um, 
And they, you know, went there and did the course, and that was their first introduction to, you know, to Dharma. And then they became a Theravada practitioner. Yeah. And then I have other friends who, from the beginning, uh, were Theravada practitioners. Uh, they met His Holiness and came to one of His Holiness's teachings, and they take bodhisattva vows. And I even have a, a Theravada friend who practices Tantra, has taken empowerment. So it's interesting to see these different things. I know somebody else, you know, who started out a Mahayana practitioner. Then did a retreat to uh, get Gine. I don't know f- how far they got on the thing. And then ordained as a Theravada monastic. So, you know, <laughs> when they talk about indefinite lineage, or they talk about uh, confused minds, or, you know, all these things, you can see that in in the lives of actual people you meet. You know? And when I was in, in Thailand, some of the, the um, monks there, the Inji monks, were quite interested in bodhicitta and what we practice and asked me lots of questions. And another monk there said, this is baloney, you know, like three countless great eons and Nagarjuna... You know, he lives so much far, he lives centuries after the Buddha. How can you trust what he said? And, uh, you know, this is just all fairy tale stuff. So it, it's, you know, when they talk about sentient beings have, having different uh, interests and dispositions, you know, when we offer the mandala at the beginning of teachings, you know, we we request for the reign of Dharma to fall according to the interest and disposition of the different sentient beings. And, you know, when you start meeting people, you see, boy, there's a whole lot of difference, yeah, and variety in what people are and the different path they follow. And, you know, it's quite interesting, yeah. Mm-hmm. Seem to prove the point that since countless eons, beginning of this time, we've done everything, but that karma predispositions aren't linear. So, one life, you're not going to just be on this, have this kind of thinking. There's going to yeah. be a whole bunch of a mixed bag because of the familiarity on lots of different levels through lots of different lifetimes. Yeah. So, nothing's black and white. Yeah. Yeah, and that's reason why if we really want to follow the Mahayana path, we should make sure that we imprint that very strongly in our own mind. You know, and so that's why we generate bodhicitta in the morning and the evening, Mm -hmm. and retake the bodhisattva vow. Then, okay, let's dedicate.